Hey there, Greybeardians. Welcome back, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Cybersecurity Graybeard, the podcast that helps students, early professionals, and retrainees learn, grow, and advance in the cybersecurity profession. Make sure to email questions, comments, and episode recommendations to cybergraybeard at gmail.com. In this episode, entitled Cybersecurity Stories, Real-World Examples, I'm going to talk about real situations that I've personally experienced. I'm not going to name any companies, only the industry and relative geography, as I don't want to expose any entities. These stories are legion. These stories are happening everywhere and could happen to anyone. It's not really important who the organizations are. I just want folks to know that these are issues that we deal with regularly. And as you join into the cybersecurity profession, if that's really what you want to do, these are examples about what you're going to run into. Some of these stories are, and examples are more egregious than others. They're all good learning experiences, not just for early professionals and students, but also more experienced professionals as well. Have you run into situations like this? Are your customers in this same type of situation, or is your own organization suffering from some of these examples that I'm going to go through? A lot of folks look to join cybersecurity, and they wonder what it's really like out here, and these tales should provide some insight into that curiosity. I encourage each of you to think about solutions to these problems. While I'll give some throughout the episode, there's many ways to solve problems. Don't just think about it from a technical point of view. Consider processes or procedures. What could these organizations be doing differently? What could they implement? Is it a staff issue? Is it a training issue? Is it their IT and their security staff? Or is it potentially the end users that need training? Is it both or all? Organizations can go ahead and spend money to solve problems sometimes. However, if a product or service is not installed or utilized properly, will money really make it better? I have some examples of that throughout, but think about it. Chucking money at a problem is not necessarily going to solve it. Use these stories to grow yourself and help you understand what the real world of cybersecurity on the ground really looks like. Before I get into these stories, they go back up to 15 years. They're not all relatively new. They're not all from the past couple of years. And again, as I said before, these are legion. I could give other examples. These are ones that have really just stuck in my mind. They are not as egregious as something like Equifax or Target. While I do have customers that I've worked with that have situations like that, I'm not going into any of that. I'm going to talk more about things that you don't really hear much about. These situations don't make the news, and this is what happens. People seem to think that, well, if it's on the front page of the New York Times or the LA Times or the Washington Post, wow, that's a big problem. Yes, that's a big problem. However, the vast, vast, vast majority of incidents and security problems are nowhere to be seen in the real media. It's stuff that we deal with every day. Again, these are all personal experiences that I've had, and I'm not reading them from a book or a newspaper. These are just my own stories. The first one, this is a hospital in the Midwest, and I tell this story all the time. This is one of, if not the oldest story that I have. It's still true today. This problem that happened in circa 2009, 2010, over a decade ago now, I still run into this regularly. I ran into it in the past couple of weeks. Here's the story. The customer comes to us and they paid $3,000 for my company to take a backup of their system, restore it, validate it, and tell them that their backup was good. They sent us the backup tapes. We went ahead and did it, and we were like, guys, there's nothing on here. And they said, oh, sorry, we'll go ahead and send you another tape. Sent us another tape. Guys, there's nothing on here. When we did some investigating, we found out that the organization had a configuration problem in their backup script. It was on a Unix machine, and it was basically a cron job running a script. The script was misconfigured. When we started to do some research, we found out the script was never configured correctly. The script was seven years old. 
This hospital did not have a backup of their system for seven years. We were all shocked. We talked to the customer. They said, wow, thank you very much. Can you fix it? Sure, we went ahead and fixed it. And I said, when would you like me to do another backup verification for you? It's $3,000 for once a quarter, or if you do it for a year, it's $10,000. It was only $10,000 for them for us to validate it. And I am not kidding. This is the absolute truth. The customer said, no, we're good. Thanks. You fixed it. So we're fine. That was one backup at one point in time for one system. How many other systems do they have out there that do not have valid backups? In today's world, ransomware. The cure for ransomware is antivirus, is that's the prevention, or not clicking the link, that's the prevention. However, once it's out there and once you have it and once it's spread everywhere, like what happened to, I believe it was Maersk and so many other organizations with NotPetya back in 2017, they didn't have valid backups and it was so widespread they couldn't recover from it. With that said, why are organizations not validating their backups regularly? And 10 years ago when it was $3,000 for a hospital who failed and had a failed backup for seven years, they didn't even do another one. What I'm saying about this is organizations need to validate their backups, especially for their critical systems, and they need to do it on a regular basis. How do you recover from a ransomware attack if you don't have valid backups? And it's one of the reasons why the Colonial Pipeline had to pay the $5 million ransom back in the summer because they didn't have backups of their system. And the CEO even came out and said that. He said, our systems are not recoverable. We had to pay the ransom. From my experience and the stories that I see, what happened Colonial Pipeline? Legion. It's everywhere. And I ran into this again back in 2009, 2010 with a small hospital in the Midwest. My next example is a large entertainment and media company based in the East Coast. This is a generic way to put it. The organization is so popular, so well known that I, I can't give any more as to who it is. I don't want to embarrass them. They don't have, I don't have a security breach story here. However, I have a story that is extremely relevant. It happens all the time. I see it everywhere. And that is an organization that keeps buying technology. They have so much technology and they get so many alerts, they don't know what to do with it. They brought me and my organization in and said, can you please help us find out, are we being attacked, what's going on in the environment? I went ahead and I looked at this organization and they had about 30 different security tools. Yes, they were dumping into a SIM, a security intelligence or information and event management system. Some people call it a security information and event management system. Some people call it a security intelligence and event management system. Bottom line is it's a SIM. It aggregates log data. This organization had dozens of programs and they're asking me and saying, hey, Graybeard, can you go ahead and make sure that all of these systems are dumping into the SIM and that we're getting proper alerts? My answer is, why are you sending all that information into the SIM? Well, we haven't really deployed them all correctly and they're not telling us what we need to hear from themselves. We want to put them into the SIM. And in addition to that, that's the SIM's job, CSGB. We need you to go ahead and put that in there and get it working. A lot of what they said made sense. However, the problem they had is they kept buying technology that they were not deploying properly. A great line that I heard today is that organizations need to stop starting and start finishing. There is too much technology and there's too much, ooh, look at the new shiny. What's the flavor of the month? I want that. I'm going to go buy that. It's going to fix my problem. They buy it. Then the next thing comes along. And before they successfully deploy what they just bought, they're off to the next thing. My point for this example before I move on to the next one is 
Organizations need to fully deploy what they buy and make sure it's doing what they bought it for before they can move on to the next tool. And this extraordinarily wealthy entertainment and media company needs to take that advice as do so many other organizations because they figure if I buy that new tool, I'm gonna be protected from the latest threat. And that is not necessarily true. If you buy a car and you don't put gas in it, you got a beautiful car sitting in your driveway. And that's what happens with a lot of these security tools. They buy the tool, they install it, then they either don't configure it or don't configure it correctly or don't finish configuring it. And then they expect it to save the day and then they're breached and they're told and they're asking, why didn't we catch that? Well, you didn't catch it because you didn't configure it correctly. And that moves on to the next organization, a healthcare company in the Northeast. I actually have two stories from these folks. They're really nice people. They're very, very good and they know what they're doing and they are struggling because there are so much attack going on and they have such a large footprint. It's very difficult to protect themselves from everything. The first example has to do with what we considered a Chinese brute force attack. What was happening is they had about 75 users that kept getting locked out of their email. No matter what they did or when they reset it, boom, it locked out again. It turns out that coming from China, there were IP addresses that were caught in one of their load balancers coming from China, and these folks, whether they were truly in China or whether they were proxying through China, we don't know. I'll talk about why that was even happening in a moment, but what was occurring is these individuals at the hospital were having their passwords locked and they couldn't get into the email. And one of these individuals was a senior nurse. She couldn't check her email when she was trying to communicate with other nurses, and it was really causing problems and it could have affected patient health care. What we ended up doing, and this was my question in the first place, is why if you're a hospital in the Northeast, are you even allowing any connections from China? You should be doing geofencing and you should actually look and find out all the network IP addresses from organizations and countries, really countries, that you're not doing business with and block them. There's zero reason for Iran or most likely Brazil or certainly China, anybody that's under an embargo by the US like China, Cuba, and Iran, those IPs should just be blocked by every organization. You're not going to be communicating with them. Again, the problem here was they had such a large footprint, they didn't know what was coming in. When we identified it, they went ahead and blocked the IPs and the brute force stopped. Again, the brute force, it was simply individuals or they had a, more than likely they had a script running that was making a connection to the email. It was using the employee's username and just throwing up false passwords 10 times. The system automatically locked it, you unlocked it, and then the brute force happened again. Once they went ahead and put up the block from China so those IP addresses couldn't connect to it, it went ahead and solved the problem. I was in the room with the chief information security officer and he looked at me and he said, hey, Graybeard, why didn't the SIM that we just installed catch this problem? Why did we have to find out about it by going through the logs of our load balancer? And I looked at him straight in the face and I said, sir, we did not have this use case as a reason for the SIM. The SIM was looking for something else. We were not sending your Active Directory credentials or your Active Directory logs, I should say, into the SIM. Therefore, we didn't see it. He looked at me and he goes, okay, thank you, good answer. Really good people, they're honest, they're fair, they're just, and they're overwhelmed. Another example of the same organization, I was walking in their data center when we were setting up the SIM, and I noticed that they had equipment from a company that I had used to work with. And I knew they weren't a customer of that company. And I pointed to the equipment and I said, why is that gear there? And the network security person, a friend of mine, who was taking me to the location of the racks to build the Unix systems, he said, I don't know what those are, Greybeard, and I don't know why they're there. And I looked at them and the lights were on and they were flickering and there was network activity. This is a threat vector. 
There was legacy hardware in this data center, which was a massive data center. There were hundreds and hundreds of computers and scores of racks and many rows. It actually went into a second room. It was so large for a hospital system. I'm not even talking about a Hewlett Packard or an America Online or some of these other huge, huge companies. I mean, Facebook, data center, Netflix's data center, Google's data center. This is a hospital and they had two rooms wide and deep of equipment. They didn't know what was there. And I looked at my friend and I said, that needs to be shut off. You have a threat vector. How old is the software on it? Who's updating it? Who owns it? Who manages it? Who maintains it? And he looks at me and he goes, Graybeard, I don't know. I don't even know who to ask about it. We're a large organization. We have thousands of employees. I don't know. And that's a problem. Organizations need to know what is in their data center and who's managing it. And it either needs to be turned off if it's not in use or it has to be updated, regularly monitored, managed, and maintained. Another example after that two with the healthcare company, is an automotive firm in the Midwest. This organization did a phishing test where they sent an email that was a fish to all of their employees, which is about 10,000 employees. And they get the results back. Who is going to click on this link? 27% of the employees clicked on the link. 27%. I've never heard of a number that high. That means 2,500 plus people basically clicked on a link that could have installed malware on their system and could have opened a door for a threat actor. That is the number one threat vector that I'm seeing today. And I believe it's fair to say it's the number one threat vector out there. And that is a phishing attack or a spear fish that is dedicated to an individual. This wasn't even spear phishing. This was just a generic email sent to 10,000 employees. 2,700 of them clicked on it. And that was just to show they have a real problem with cybersecurity awareness training in the organization. It's not about IT and it's not about security and it's not about risk. Everybody, and I've said this before, everybody that has a mobile device, a computer that is doing anything on the network needs to have training. Folks need to know not to click on a link that says, hey, I'm a prince in Belgium and if you click this link and lend me $5, I'll return it back to you tenfold or whatever the, the scam is. They're scams. Everybody needs to know this by now. It's been going on for over a decade, these phishing attacks. 27% clicked on it. With that said, there is a study out, and I don't know if it was by Gartner or by some other organization, Forrester, or one of these folks, and they came out and said, 3% of employees will always click that link. No matter what you do, no matter how much training they get, no matter how much you punish them, 3% of people will click on that link. And I have an open-ended question. What do we do with those 3% of the people? Because those 3% of the people, if they're in the federal government, could allow terrorists to get on systems. If they're in an airline company, 3% of the employees could allow hackers to get in and start manipulating data for airlines. Or in an automotive company, the whole thing, wherever it is, it's the Colonial Pipeline is a great example. Raised the price of gasoline. It impacted the flow of, of gasoline in the East Coast. And if 3% of people will click on that link, what does that say about the security of an organization? What are we going to do with the 3%? Now, if you have 27%, that you can help. You can do training. You can deal with certain technologies that may help it. You can have proxy servers that will block certain things. But there's always a new botnet that goes up. At the end of the day, it has to be about training. It has to be about the individual that clicks the link that is opening the door for the criminal. We need to take it down to the 3%. And at the 3%, then we need to make a decision as a company, as an organization, or whatnot, what we do with those folks. A couple more examples. A financial services firm in the South. These folks had a distributed denial of service attack. Basically what happened is their pipes, their networks were overwhelmed and individuals couldn't do work. 
They couldn't access the internet. It affected productivity. And they declared a disaster or an incident, really, in this case. And it really is the same thing. Organizations need to learn that a cyber attack is a disaster and you have to have an incident response plan or a disaster recovery plan that lines up with incident response and react accordingly. The challenge with this attack was that they simultaneously, or maybe it was just the DNS problem and it wasn't a distributed denial of service attack, was also hitting them. The problem that we had in security, are we down and having an impact to performance because there's a nefarious actor banging on the door at such high speeds and such an amount of traffic that we can't do our work? Or is there a problem with our DNS and we can't do name resolution because we just switched over to another company and the primary is down and the secondary is not to be found because they just moved it? Questions came up, is this really a cyber attack? And that's where we had to get the networking people involved, we had to get the application people involved, and you have a large powwow. And this went on for a long time. This went on for days, if not over a week. And the whole thing was the denial of service attack, the brute force, was it DNS? And in the end, I do believe it was a denial of service attack. They also basically shot themselves in the foot because of the DNS at the same time. At the end of the day, the symptoms were the same. People couldn't get where they needed to go and the networks were overwhelmed. The DNS problem, for those that understand and know about these things, if you don't have name resolution, you can't take foxnews.com and translate it to the IP address. It just sits there. And for that reason, the users were just kind of dead in the water. It would be the same symptom. They wouldn't be able to get to foxnews.com because there was so much traffic banging on the door, they couldn't get out. It's basically all these cars are lined up and you're trying to leave and everybody's trying to get in. You can't go. The symptom was the same. They couldn't reach the browser, the website, in my example, foxnews.com. And therefore, they were saying that it was the denial of service attack. And I was saying, well, you need to clean up your DNS get that fixed and then figure it out. I believe that's what they did and they came back and said we had both. Very difficult to identify and solve technical problems, whether they're security related or not, if you have multiple issues at the same time. The next one I'm gonna talk about is a different healthcare company in the South. It actually is in the same state as the financial services firm, but this is 10 plus years ago. Completely coincidental, I just happen to do a lot of business in this state in the South. What happened here was the organization had no way, and this is actually a state, a state entity that manages the healthcare didn't have a way to identify when individuals left third parties that had access. Basically, the employees at their partner firms, whether it was the folks that dealt with their revenue cycle or their health information management or controlled their pharmacy and had to do updates, all the people that worked at those individual organizations used Cisco AnyConnect to remote access in through a VPN and manage the systems for the customer. The problem was when you had an employee leave the vendor, the state didn't know about it. I went in and I said, hey, there's this new technology. It's called SecureLink. Great guys, great technology. If you're interested in remote access and VPNs, I really recommend you look at it. It's SecureLink. They're based out of Austin, Texas. We were trying to get this state hospital-run system, so we were dealing with the state and the government, basically, to deploy SecureLink at all their facilities. It was one of the most difficult conversations I've ever had professionally, and I literally was physically ill after the meeting because the network engineers, one guy in particular, was such a jerk that I was, I was irate, and I, he's my customer. I can't say anything negative about him. I was just not feeling well when the whole thing was over. Some people came to me and actually apologized, and the people that worked with this guy were embarrassed, and they apologized as well. It was very difficult, and the reason I'm going into that detail is when we're dealing with security, sometimes people get very emotional about it, and I'm telling him, you don't know when your third-party employees are leaving 
saying they will still have access. No, they won't. We know how to shut it off. And blah, 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 blah. He didn't. And as an example, I just before recording this logged in using the remote phone system that I used at a company I worked for seven and a half years ago. I memorized, because I dial it so many times, the phone number, my ID, and my leader pin. And I just tried it, all 21 digits, and it worked. The organization that I work for apparently has not done any identity and access management on their third party as well because it's an AT&T bridge, I believe, that I'm dialing into. I test it every year or two just to see if it still works, and it does. Going back to the healthcare that's run by the state, they did not want to put in SecureLink. They wanted to stick with their tried-and-true method. And I'm now proving with the ability to get on seven and a half years later to a phone system that there are employees, and I know this for a fact, that when people left the third-party vendors, they still had access into a hospital many hospitals because it was a state-run system and it was not a single environment. This is critical from a security perspective. You need to have third-party risk management. You need to have remote access controls. You need to be able to terminate access when people leave. That is a problem. It still exists today. And even though I was dealing with this healthcare organization and this run by the state 10 plus years ago, I still run into it today. Organizations need third-party risk management. It is a real problem. It is something that needs to be on their radar. The last one that I'm going to talk about is a financial services firm in the South. They had $500,000 worth of equipment that didn't even have network cables connected. These devices were supposed to be sniffing the wire. They were looking and grabbing flows of networking data and then sending it into a device that would aggregate information and provide the aggregated data to SIM. This $500,000 in equipment wasn't even cabled properly for 18 months. Now, Greybeard, why is this a security breach? Well, it's a security breach for a number of reasons. One, they spent $500,000 and they didn't even use it. It's a security breach from an inventory perspective. More realistically, they thought they were monitoring the flows that these devices were supposed to be aggregating data for. They didn't know. Everybody was trusting somebody else to be looking at it and identifying that there's a problem. I came into the project because they were doing a data center migration and we went to identify what was happening. We looked and go, these devices aren't even connected. Nobody understood it. And for 18 months, these boxes sat there with no cables connected. Organizations need to know what they have in inventory, how they're being used, who's monitoring, managing, and maintaining these systems. For 18 months, shouldn't somebody have said somewhere, huh, we need to update those, we need to patch those? They were showing up in the sim as a secondary unit, and nobody was saying anything about it. Those are some real-world examples. I have more. I don't need to keep going into it. I think I've made my point that problems from 10-plus years ago are happening today. The cybersecurity profession is a great field to be in. There are great needs. And if these are stories that you're saying, oh my God, that would never have happened if I was there, get into cybersecurity because we could use you. It'll be wonderful to have new folks with new ideas that understand what's going on and then learn and grow and advance and bring that knowledge into the cyber field to help these healthcare organizations and these financial services organizations, the industrial company, the media company, everybody that I talked about today. They need help. Help. We need you. I welcome you to join the cybersecurity profession. And I'd like to hear from you. If you're in the field and you have stories like this, send me an email. Shoot me a note at cybergraybeard at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your stories. That's all for now. I'll be back next week with an episode on incident response plans. Thanks and have a great day.